0: I'm back from Oklahoma, and I'm ready to chat with you all today about some pressing updates you may have missed that perhaps were glossed over in the news cycle. I will first start with an overview of our recent POMA conference, then I will weave into the story about a court case where the Maine Lobstermen won against the Commerce Department. We've chronicled that saga here. I will read that for you. And ahead of the deadline of the proposed Bureau of Land Management conservation lease rule, I want to explain further my contention and opposition to that rule. It's billed as this conservation lease. It's not going to interfere with multiple uses and the model. But everything else I've seen about it strikes me as... A departure from multiple use sustained yield, especially because it's going to give undue influence to nonprofit groups that don't like hunting, don't like fishing, don't like grazing, and all these other activities that are under the purview of multiple use. So, we're going to talk about those two topics for you this week. Let's dive into these stories right now. Professional Outdoor Media Association's 18th or 19th annual business conference recently concluded in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. It was the first time I've ever been to the Sooner State. I really enjoyed my time there, even though it was super short. I was able to pack in some outdoor activities. I didn't get to go fishing, unfortunately, due to logistics, but I got to at least be somewhat outdoorsy. I was very impressed by the gathering place in Midtown Tulsa. It's this big outdoor park built using oil and gas money, interestingly enough. And it's really a nice space alongside the Arkansas River. It's great for kids. It's great for adults. Very, very impressed by it. And then I also got to spend a little time outdoors, largely admiring the grounds of the Philbrook Museum of Art, also in Midtown Tulsa. But I had heard of the different fishing opportunities. Some of my Poma mem- fellow Poma members got to go fishing and do some outdoor trips After the conference, so super jealous of them, but it was a great conference. I wrote about it in my Substack newsletter about what our members can expect, some of the big plans we have going forward for our organization to really continue to keep it growing, to bring in outdoor communicators, writers, especially younger people, more in the fishing side, and help our organization continue to be kind of a safe harbor and refuge for outdoor communicators, I don't know if you all follow or kind of peek into what goes on in the outdoor media space on the journalism, writing, commentary side. The groups that have been longstanding media organizations, many of them kind of regional groups, have been folding or shuttering their doors altogether. That's a very alarming Concern to me, personally speaking, as someone who has navigated this industry, has worked in it for the better part of over half a decade, give or take, formally speaking, benefited from outdoor media associations. I worked with one that went under, had a great time working with them, and it was really saddening to hear that they are no longer in existence. So POMA, along with a few remaining outdoor media associations, is a necessary Entity for helping to cultivate future, current, and existing and established rather outdoor communicators and help us channel these perspectives in mainstream sources, in endemic like minded sources as well. Because so many people, and I say this as someone who's a journalist, multimedia specialist, what have you. So many people that I reach and that I interact with outside of the outdoor industry still don't understand what the heck conservation is. They conflate it with preservation. They don't see fishing and hunting as a valuable resource and component to the greater conservation piece. They dismiss it. They don't understand how firearms excise taxes factor into this as well. So there's a lot of misunderstanding among many in media, not all, but many, There have been some people in mainstream sources, however, who understand the connection that hunting and guns, especially through Pittman-Robertson Act funds, play into this greater conservation picture. Pre-COVID, NPR wrote a great piece saying, without hunters, conservation risks going extinct. That was really refreshing to see that they were admitting and conceding that hunting plays a very important role. And now that it's post-COVID, we have seen some alarm bells go off. Some reports I've seen that hunting numbers are down again. Fishing numbers have not suffered. Again, fishing is much easier to access and to do. Fewer barriers to entry, less cost prohibitive. Fishing isn't seeing a decline like hunting is. It could down the road, heaven forbid. But hunting struggles. Uh, Even with more positive campaigns out there, more efforts, And perhaps it's because there's much gatekeeping going on in media. They don't want this perspective to be shown. I can't really pinpoint exactly what explains this, whether it's hostility or not. I think... The outdoor industry has done a better job of explaining this lifestyle we've done pretty decently. I would say even personally speaking, whatever I can do to educate people, invite new people into the fold, share my perspective as an adult onset hunter, and I know I can do a lot more. It's hard to diagnose exactly what is happening I hope I can give you an answer as to what is ailing us and preventing us from growing our numbers if something can be pinpointed as the root cause of it. But I would say a lot of great strides since I've been covering this beat have been made. This is where organizations like POMA come in. Our outgoing president, Michelle Sherman, who got me roped into the organization, recently completed her term. We have a new president equally as awesome, Jen Ripple, a award-winning fly angler. She was just inducted into a Hall of Fame the Southern Fly Fishing Hall of Fame. We have similar family backgrounds. You've heard Jen and Michelle on the show, and Jen especially has great plans to continue what Michelle has done and really wants to pick up where she left off and just expand even further. So I'm very excited as a board member and as a member to see what Jen has in store for our organization. I'll be working alongside her with the rest of our board And again, if you want to learn more about POMA, some of our dynamics, and where our future conference is going to be, we have a location for 2024. It's a little earlier. It's in early May in South Carolina. Go check out my substack and join POMA. You're going to see some changes. We're going to change our pricing. We're going to change how members can use and take advantage of their membership. So I promise positive changes are coming. That's what you can expect. And I'm also going to talk more at length, maybe tomorrow, I'll discuss a Stop the Bleed training that I set in on during our conference, hosted by the Los Angeles-based MedicUp Consulting LLC. It was a great training. It made me realize that I do not know a lot about personal safety. I've done some first aid classes, I did a CPR class way back in the day, but They taught us how to make tourniquets, which you don't think you're going to have to use, but perhaps one day you will. So I'm going to talk at length about it here on the program, and I'm going to write about it at Substack. But I think it was a great week in Oklahoma. I checked off a new state. I got to see friends. I'm very excited about the direction we're going to be going as an organization. And if you want to join our ranks, I encourage you to do so. Links and resources are provided in the show notes. Maine lobstermen, why should you care about them if you do not live in Maine? I have talked about the situation in that state, the onslaught of attacks from the federal government, particularly the Commerce Department and environmental groups that have put Maine lobstermen in their crosshairs and a victory in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals actually punish the NOAA Fisheries, or the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is under the purview of the Commerce Department. It's also known by another name as well, but NOAA Fisheries is how it's known. And the United States Court of Appeals from D.C., they decided on June 16th, last Friday, in the case Maine Lobstermen Association versus and State of Maine Department of Resources versus the National Marine Fisheries Service, or NOAA Fisheries, that... NOAA, as the agency, cannot use worst-case endangerment scenarios against lobstermen. That NOAA's legal reasoning wasn't just wrong; it was egregiously wrong, and essentially meaning leaning on worst-case scenarios in biological opinions on the Endangered Species Act with Chevron deference. And reading from the ruling, here is what. The judges decided, and in doing so in this ruling, the action agency must, quote, use the best scientific and commercial data available, end quote. This empirical mandate ensures the law is not, quote, implemented haphazardly on the basis of speculation or surmise, and thus avoids needless economic dislocation produced by agency officials zealously but unintelligently pursuing their environmental objectives. And if you need a more layman's term explanation of this, I'm reading from Fox News about they had a great write up. They won a legal victory. This organization suing NMFS, again, NOAA fisheries, for its new rule that the government said was aimed at protecting North Atlantic right whales, which are endangered, but the lobstermen claimed threatened to put lobster fisheries businesses out of commission. And they have loved to use. Lobster fishermen, this is my opinion now, as a scapegoat to say that they're imperiling the North Atlantic right whale. They're also blaming vessels and other people and stakeholders on oceans and offshore for the plight of the North Atlantic right whale. I'm going to argue, as I have in previous episodes, that the North Atlantic right whale is actually imperiled by another threat, a threat that this administration in particular likes to overlook. It's not lobstermen. It's not fishermen. It's perhaps the underwater surveying that is occurring in preparation for constructing offshore wind turbines. Now, the administration has said this is imagined, this is not a real threat, that we need to pursue these clean energy goals. We need 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030, or else we're perpetuating climate crisis. And they deny that offshore wind surveying has led to marine life dying. You guys have heard about countless dozens of whales dying all across the East Coast, largely in New York and New Jersey, And they say, well, no, 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 this is not because of this. It's because of fishermen deliberately striking and vessels deliberately striking these whales. My understanding is these boat boat operations, these fishermen understand that these are critically endangered whales. Why would they want to deliberately crash into them? Something else has to explain why these crashes and conflicts are occurring. Many of us, myself included, are led to believe that this survey activity, this Activity in preparation for offshore wind is what is contributing to these frequent crashes. And they may be in denial about it, but even one NOAA Fisheries spokesperson said that these whales may be responding to level A, or may be experiencing, rather, level A and level B harassment because of underwater geological surveys and testing. He conceded it in the Chesapeake Bay Magazine, the one spokesperson I'm going to include it in the show notes. On the Marine Mammal Commission website, they say that offshore wind can have a negative adverse effect on critically endangered marine life. And even the NOAA Fisheries expert from New England said that offshore wind does pose a threat to whales. I will pull for you his letter. Sean Hayes, he is someone I wish the members of Congress would bring before Congress to testify. I believe there's going to be a hearing sometime this week, next week, maybe next month, involving some people. The Republicans are planning a hearing to get to the bottom of what is actually ailing marine life and what potential threat offshore wind does pose. Back to this court case, it factors in all this consideration of offshore wind, and pinning the blame on lobstermen doesn't help the whale. There have been no connections between lobstermen activities and whale deaths in over 20 years. This is very well documented, and so I am pleased to hear that the Maine Lobstermen Association won in a very liberal court. You would never think the D.C. Court of Appeals would ever rule this, but the commerce department was reprimanded saying that the agency makes rules based on assumptions of worst case scenarios and give the benefit of the doubt to endangered species. But Douglas Ginsburg of the U S court of appeals for district of Columbia circuit, who was part of a three judge panel decided the case lambasting the government's theory in the opinion issued Friday. And they said the legal Reasoning was not only just wrong, it was egregiously wrong. The service's argument rested entirely upon a half sentence in the legislative history. This approach is a relic from the bygone era of statutory construction. And the ruling continued under the services approach. Legislative history may supply duties that, as the service now concedes are not found in the enacted law. As the Supreme Court recently said, we cannot approve such a casual disregard of the rules of statutory interpretation. The reason is obvious. As any high school civic students should know, legislators vote on and the president signs bills, not their legislative history. Judge Ginsburg continued. Judge Ginberg also seemed to call out the Agency for Historical Hypocrisy in its rulemaking. Only a few years ago, the service, revisiting its interpretive rules, agreed with commentators that nothing in the ESA required it to use a worst-case scenario or make unduly conservative modeling assumptions and rejected comments arguing it should give the benefit of the doubt to a species by evaluating effects or activities that were possible, even if not likely. Great case ruling. It seems like a glimmer of positivity in you know, restoring balance to this because these agencies, we've talked about this, and our next story relates to agencies exceeding their rulemaking authority, creating rules where Congress is supposed to be having authority here and in doing so, this power rests with Congress. But agencies are... Exceeding their bounds, creating rules, and they're not supposed to be doing this. This is why we saw the Supreme Court rule in the WOTUS case just a few weeks ago. We saw last year that uh, the, again, EPA, much like it was in WOTUS, was reprimanded for exceeding its bounds on the Clean Power Plan kind of legislation it was trying to do, making new rules there. And the Chevron case, there's a a case uh, that fishermen are pushing before the Supreme Court. There's a case, I've talked about it, written about it for Independent Women's Forum as well, and that case could help clarify these rules. And that's also a, a case involving the Commerce Department, believe it or not. That case will likely be heard by this Supreme Court, the Roberts Court, I think early fall, and probably a decision will be handed down by springtime or June, but the courts have to weigh in here and put a balance on regulatory overreach from governmental agencies. This is what the Biden administration wants to do because they can't pass rules through Congress. They're leaning on regulatory agencies to be able to enact rulemaking, and that is not how the process works. If you want to change laws, that's where Congress steps in. That's Congress's duty. These agencies need to have their power in check, and I think this is one of hopefully many decisions that'll put a clamp on Agencies Exceeding Rulemaking Authority. Speaking of agencies exceeding rulemaking, I want to revisit the Bureau of Land Management's proposed conservation lease rule that will be closing tomorrow, June 20th. We have touched upon this, and I've made my stance very clear that I cannot support this rule in its current iteration, and I don't think any future iteration. I want to read for you the comments that I submitted to this proposed rule, And why, as a conservationist, I can't in any good conscience support it. I listed four or five reasons to back up my position and why I think this will undermine true conservation, multiple use, sustain, yield. Before I read my comment... I was perusing through the language again, and they're claiming the administration that this will not interfere with multiple use management, that this is for mitigating certain activities and putting conservation on equal footing with grazing, mining, and other so-called exhaustive activities or land-intensive activities. And that sounds fine and dandy. They may promise it. But with every other rule I've seen from this administration, they promise that they're going to abide by things. And then when the rule is implemented, it's the total opposite. It's like a bait and switch. And now I want to read for you why I think that's the case. So they promised to put conservation on equal footing. Do we have conservation already promulgated by the law that governs public lands management? So here's my comment. It ties everything together. And I hope it's concrete and explanatory enough as to why this is not good for conservation. And I start to see more sportsmen's group, thankfully, chiming opposition to this Safari Club International has done a great job of this. And I will be recording a podcast later today on the Lone Star Outdoor Show with Ben Cassidy from Safari Club International and also Cable Smith, the host of it, to explain why this is a very terrible rule. As a conservationist, I cannot in good faith support the proposed BLM Conservation and Landscape Health Rule. They they bill it so nice and flowery, it sounds so great on the surface, this is deliberately what government does. Here's my first point. First, the Federal Land Policy and Management Act, FLIPMA, Already prioritizes and stipulates conservation in multiple-use management sustained yield practices. It just needs to be enforced. This is true. I remember reading the language in the law, the 1973 law, that says conservation has to be regarded when it comes to multiple uses. So is this redundant? What are they trying to accomplish here? Second, few conservation stakeholders appear to have been consulted in this process. Very true. Others, including farmers and ranchers, have been vilified as despoilers of the land when the opposite is true. Many stakeholders feel ignored and not heard by this administration. That doesn't instill confidence in the rulemaking process. What we've seen for Antiquities Act designations to create new national monuments, the lead ban, tackle ban, and other priorities of this administration, they go directly, or rather, the preservationists directly petition this administration and stakeholders who From the localities and the areas affected by these decisions are never to be heard from and never to be consulted. This seems to be a pattern, unsurprisingly. And to have a democratic rulemaking decision, or rather rulemaking process, you need to consult all stakeholders, not just select few people and have them petition you directly. But what we've seen this Secretary of Interior do, she will go to places after she's been pressured and called out for not listening to perspectives, Secretary Howland. and she'll go and she'll say, okay, I hear your concerns. I've heard this from local stakeholders. They said that she's come to the area, pretends to be nice, pretends to hear their concerns, but she already has a preconceived determination, preconceived decision in her head. She's just going to say, okay, I checked this off, but we already have decided to not hear your perspective, and so when you have preservationists directly petitioning the Biden administration, you don't have a democratic process. This is anti-democratic, given what I've seen from people who've said they've their feedback has not been relayed to the Biden administration. Third, so-called conservation leases can be exploited by outside, per- powerful and wealthy special interest preservationist group not tied to or connected to the land to bid on leases and close off access by creating non uses, contra to the flipma. This would undermine stakeholder input and paradoxically undermine public lands access if these groups can just bid on big swaths of leases. So with their reasoning behind the creation of this, they say, well, this will, again, equalize access, be good for everyone. But I can see this being manipulated by the likes of Sierra Club, Natural Resources Defense Council, and other very wealthy, powerful, special interest groups on the preservationist side. They're going to bid on these leases with the powerful resources they have, that smaller individuals, smaller groups will not be able to compete and bid on an equal footing. Even if we were to say, okay, let's give the benefit of the doubt. Let's maybe entertain this idea. This gives undue preference to special interest groups that are not true conservationists, and they're going to, ironically, close off public lands and put them into non-uses, which is very much against the public land model we have in this country. And. Uh, A use doesn't mean you're going to graze, mine, do this. A use also means hunting, fishing, maybe an outfitting service. So I think it's going to be exploited. That was my third point of contention. Fourth, the rule pledges to, quote, mitigate the environmental impact of development projects on public lands through so-called carbon offsets and other clean energy projects. I also noted that carbon offsets are controversial and often emblematic of greenwashing. The latter, which this administration wants, requires and often exhausts large trucks of land of high-quality, productive land for solar panels or wind turbines. There's also the promise to compensate future potential destruction of wildlife habitat in nearby low-quality, lesser-productive land. This is hypocritical. If it were oil or gas companies, this administration would be wholly opposed to such an idea to offset the impact of these projects. Why not have the same scrutiny for clean energy? Consistency must apply here. Why downplay potential harmful environmental impacts from clean energy projects, which is what this administration does? There are many, but a rush to decarbonize comes first. This is unfortunate. And here's my fifth point. I actually tie it back to the fact that this rule may not be legal. Let me explain why that's the case. I'm not creating this out of thin air. In conclusion... This effort is trying to replicate and repeat the goals of the BLM 2.0 rule from 2016. Duplicating this may be in violation of the Congressional Review Act, which was used by Congress in 2017 to repeal that rule. There's almost verbatim language between the two rules. If you didn't know that, I will add context to that in the show notes if you're curious. And I also cited the National Conference of State Legislatures, this is a bipartisan, nonpartisan entity, explains, quote, Additionally, the federal agency which promulgated the rule is prohibited from reissuing the same regulation in the future or developing a regulation that is substantially similar unless the new or revised regulation is specifically authorized by a law enacted after the date of the joint resolution disapproving the original rule. So this is in violation of the Congressional Review Act by all accounts and purposes. Any good observer would point this out. I think Senator Barrasso was one of the earliest to point this out and say that it is in violation of the law of the Congressional Review Act because this was replicated... Before, the language is very similar. They're just presenting it in a new way. So that may be complicating the rule altogether, but we are going to see this implemented. Unfortunately, doesn't matter how many comments are submitted in opposition to this. But given the court precedent I've laid out for the Lobsterman case and kind of the excesses, Of regulatory fiat by the Environmental Protection Agency and other agencies like the Commerce Department, I think the BLM is going to be reprimanded in the same fashion because it's exceeding its boundaries. In defining what conservation is, that was under FLIPMA. That's, again, Congress's duty. I don't think Congress is going to change multiple uses meaning and the conservation meaning anytime soon because we are in a divided Congress. And it would be unwise to depart from multiple use management sustain yield. We have a lot of lands already closed off to multiple uses that are for non-uses. Do your research into this conservation lease rule. I've made my own decision and conclusions about it, and I just can't in good faith support it because of just the redundancy with it, the language contained to it, the fact that it can be exploited by bad actors, preservationists who want to close off public lands to the public. That is the goal of some of these groups because they think any human impact is negative and will be destructive, even if you access public lands. So I don't trust this administration to steward public lands in its rightful way, I see them wanting to move to this public use model, which again, treats human impact as terrible and negative. And we need to move away from that philosophy in environmentalism and view humans as a positive influence on the landscape. We have done a lot to improve the environment. We have fantastic public lands that should be enjoyed by all and not hijacked and controlled by special interest preservationist groups who want to lock off opportunities to the public to access public lands. I know that's a mouthful. It sounds very paradoxical that so-called public lands advocates would want to push this, but this is their agenda. Again, do your own research. You may reach a different conclusion than me, but I just can't I just can't wrap my head around this. I can't support this. I just don't trust this administration to steward public lands and keep the model that has worked for so long in place. So you have to be skeptical and see that too powerful of a government can restrict your ability to access public lands too, especially in the hands of the wrong administration. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure you're connected to us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also on your preferred player, we recommend Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us reviews if you really like the content share the podcast with friends who may be interested in learning more about what's trending in conservation and the related industries that entangle with it and sometimes work against it as well. Thanks for listening to the show and stay tuned for the next episode.